are put on these ankle monitors are folks who would be very likely to appear for their immigration court hearings in any case. A popular alternative to detention among activists is community supervision. That's when social workers help the immigrant find housing, transportation, and show up for their court dates. In a report, ICE said that program's compliance rate was 100%. But the Trump administration stopped the program in 2017, arguing it wasn't effective. Detention centers are very dark places. In March of last year, Thorisa Liborio Ramos wasn't thinking about policies or alternatives to detention. All she knew was that she was detained at the West County Detention Center, a county jail with 1,100 beds near Oakland. About 200 immigrants were housed there at any given time. The people that end up there, we suffer a lot. We're treated badly by guards. There's discrimination. You wake up and every bed is filled. I'd wake up and look around. Everything is white. The blankets are white. The beds are white. I'm like, wow, we're in a morgue. It's a very sad nightmare. Some of the detention centers are owned and operated by private prison companies. But many are local jails that rent beds to ICE, like the one Floricel was in, which brought in $6 million annually for the county. At the time, ICE relied on three local jails to detain immigrants in all of Northern California. But in 2016, the Department of Homeland Security, the agency that oversees ICE, told it to rely less on local facilities because, quote, county jails are in general the most problematic facilities for immigrant detention. Local activists started pressuring lawmakers to stop doing business with ICE. And one of their main causes was Floricel. She spent months and months in detention. Hi, everyone. So we're here today to support Floricel and her family. The government argued that Floricel should stay in detention because of two DUIs on her record, that she was a danger to society. But her attorneys argued that Floricel's three kids needed her, especially her youngest, who has special needs. Finally, after a year of being away from her kids, a judge allowed Floricel out of detention. When my attorney told me, I started to cry. Wow, I couldn't believe it. It was incredible happiness. But that happiness quickly wore off. When I first talked to Floricel, she's been out of detention for a month. This period of my life is a bit difficult. There was a catch. In order to get out of detention, back to her children, she agreed to wear a GPS ankle monitor. Here I'm free, but I care this. I can't really be free because of this machine I have 24-7, day and night. I'm not totally free. Ice says it needs to track Floricel to make sure she doesn't run away. It's illogical. How can they think I'm going to run away? I've lived here for 20 years. My kids are here. I would never put my children's life at risk. Where would I go? Here's how the arrangement works. 
Floricel is allowed to live with her family in exchange for wearing the ankle monitor. And once a week, an agent checks in on her to make sure the monitor is working. It's a black bracelet. I take out the battery. I have to take it off to charge and then put it in. Floricel says she has to charge the ankle monitor every few hours. I can't work. I left the tension, but I'm practically still in prison in my own home. I realized that sometimes I feel like a robot. Without the battery, I can't walk. I have to charge it until the light turns green. After the first time we meet, I asked Floricel to record herself as she goes about her daily life. I'm going to bathe now. I'm going to have to be very careful with the bracelet because it's uncomfortable, because I can't bathe easily. When I put it on, it hurts. It's really ugly. I'm going to put on my pants. So tight. The other foot is easy because there's nothing stopping my leg from going in. Okay, now the apparatus is charging. I get nervous, feel ashamed because I have to go around with that sound. Floricel says she's still not free. It's possible she'll have to wait for years to get the monitor off. Her next hearing is in three months. You're listening to Making Contact and Episode 7 from the documentary podcast series 70 Million. Make sure you don't miss out on the behind-the-scenes info and our next program announcement. Go to radioproject.org and see the Stay in Touch section on the right. And now, back to 70 Million. Floricel's case is not unique. Judges in the greater criminal justice system use ankle monitors too, often as a condition of probation or parole. According to the latest numbers from the Pew Research Center, more than a quarter of a million people are tracked by ankle monitors at a given time. And among them are more than 36,000 immigrants. For many, like Floricel, this alternative to detention is just another form of bondage. Immigrants with ankle monitors often complain they stop working, itch, and even cause pain and bruising. So the question becomes, who do they hold accountable for this? When there's an issue with the ankle monitor, who do they call? The company that runs the program is a subsidiary of the GEO Group, which owns and operates dozens of immigrant detention centers around the country. So it makes money off detention and the alternatives to detention, both coming and going. U.S. taxpayers pay nearly $61 million to GEO for electronic monitoring in the fiscal year 2017. That's out of a total of more than a billion for detention as a whole. And based on government estimates, that's likely to go up in 2018. 
Geo isn't the only company profiting from immigrants wearing ankle monitors. For more on that, let's meet Armando Sandoval. My name is Armando Sandoval. I was born in Mexico. I went to school in Los Angeles. Armando is soft-spoken, with a shaved head and mustache. He came to the U.S. with an uncle when he was two and is undocumented. We sit in his apartment in San Jose with his wife, Maella, and their son, Jose. ICE detained Armando in 2016, and a judge set his bond at $18,000. There was no way Armando could afford that, so he sat in detention for months. After a little while, he got desperate. From there, I just decided I just had to bail out because it was, you're in detained. They gave you fast courts, and they didn't give you time enough for you to gather all your, what you need to fight your case. Armando believed that he had a better chance at fighting deportation by getting out of detention. The problem is, most bail companies don't give loans to immigrants. That's because immigration bail works differently than traditional bail. Normally, in a criminal case, you can put, say, 10% of your bond up front. Then you and the bail bond company promise to pay the rest if you abscond. But in immigration court, you have to pay the full amount at the beginning, all of it. Bond companies worry that immigrants will pay only 10%, then skip out, and they're left with the bill. So when a friend in detention told Armando of a company that would help him post bail anyway, he took his chance. It's called Libre by Nexus, an immigration bail agent company. The name Libre is Spanish for free. In this TV commercial, the presenter is in front of a happy Latino dad with his son on his shoulders. Armando's wife, Maela, called the number, and after months in detention, Armando stepped outside of the facility's walls. But instead of meeting Maela, he was greeted by a company representative. The Libre guy drove him to a nearby hotel. They went up to a room where this guy Armando had never met before strapped an ankle monitor to his leg. Armando signed some paperwork, and they parted ways. Only after did Armando reconnect with his wife. Armando and immigrants like him pay $420 per month to Libre by Nexus. As part of the deal, he agrees to wear the ankle monitor while his case winds its way through court. And at first, Armando wasn't paying much attention to it at all. I didn't really give a care about it because I was already out, I was excited. And then from there on, that's when I started seeing the changes. Changes like the dirty looks people gave him at the grocery store, like the time a neighbor called his landlord on him. Then there was the time he lost the monitor. The Libre by Nexus employee said it would cost $4,000 to replace it. I got shocked at that moment. I was like, what? In the end, Armando found the monitor. But at times, it hasn't worked properly. All the while, Armando and Maela are still paying $420 per month to Libre. Like, while well, we've been paying for the ankle monitor, it hasn't been working, and but we still have to pay for it. And so it's kind of crazy, but... In total, they've paid over $13,000 to Libre by Nexus. And here's the kicker. 
None of it goes towards Armando's bond. It's just for renting the ankle monitor, for being out of detention. He still has to pay the full bond. Studies show bond amounts tend to be arbitrary and really vary by judge. We do know that the average bond amounts for immigrants have increased over the past two decades. Most immigrants can't afford to pay them, so they sit in detention for months. A company like Libre fills the gap. The role that Libre by Nexus plays is a, a very, very troubling one. This is Denise Gilman from the University of Texas again. So it can lead to a real uh, spiraling downward in the economic situation for the migrant and his or her family. Libre by Nexus did not reply to request for comment on this story. But the company is the subject of investigations by three states for abusive and fraudulent business practices. A few months after I first talked to him, Armando tells me he was able to get his ankle monitor off. I feel like it's, I have more freedom, but at a certain moment I don't because I know I still got to be paying the bond. And he's still waiting for his case to be decided. The San Francisco Immigration Court has an average wait time of three years. That's much shorter than Chicago, San Antonio, or Atlanta. Armando's next court date isn't until 2019. But Floricel has an important hearing coming up. The night before, I meet her at her home. We sit down in her living room so she can bring me up to speed on her case. I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. The hearing the next day is to evaluate Floricel's fear of returning to Mexico. Her attorneys will call a Mexican expert on indigenous peoples to testify. If they can convince the judge she'll be harmed if she's deported, then she gets to stay. Of course, I'm a little nervous because I don't know how the judge is going to react tomorrow. Floricel says Huichol people are often discriminated against in Mexico. We're indigenous people. Our clothing and language are different. My ancestors spoke in a dialect. We're not free to walk in the streets. Sometimes they see us and they criticize us, shame us. In the past few decades, the Zeta cartel has forcibly taken a lot of Huichol land to grow drugs in rural areas. When she was a teenager, Floricel says her uncle protested the cartel's taking of his land. One day she watched as gang members killed him, and then, as she ran away, they shot at her. She was able to escape, but feared for her life. The morning of her court hearing, Floricel records herself. Here she is on her way to the train. We're walking to the train station. I've taken a few hard steps, and the bracelet is hurting me. It feels really heavy. Floricel rides on the train from Lodi to San Francisco. I meet her downtown, outside the large stone immigration court building. She's surrounded by dozens of activists who are there to support her. I want to give huge thanks from my heart for being here and supporting me at this hearing. After Floricel finishes, I enter the courthouse, but get stopped by ICE security. 
I just tried to get into immigration court and I couldn't bring my recorder in. So I'm going to go and put it back in my car and then go up and watch Floaty Cell's hearing. The courtroom has four rows of wooden benches packed with supporters. Judge Valerie Birch and a translator sit up front, a giant logo of the Department of Justice behind them. At one table is the attorney for the government. At the other, Floaty Cell's two attorneys confer amongst themselves. Floaty Cell sits next to them, looking worried. Her attorney starts the questioning. The expert testifies how both Mexican police and cartels have taken land and human rights away from indigenous peoples, like the Huichol. During most of it, Floaty Cell keeps sighing and staring at the ceiling. The most dramatic moment comes after an hour, when a strange sound starts disrupting the hearing. Judge Birch stops the whole thing. Judge Birch, what is that noise? Silence. Thodicel looks embarrassed. Low battery, recharge unit. Low battery, recharge unit. It's her ankle monitor, Judge, Thodicel's attorney says. The judge asks the expert to continue. But every 30 seconds or so, he's interrupted. Low battery, recharge unit. Judge Birch stops the hearing once again. She sends an audience member to see what they can do. Finally, she comes back with the charger. Floaty Cell connects the monitor, still around her ankle, to the wall. The expert testifies for a full three hours. Then both sides give concluding statements. Floaty Cell's attorneys argue if she's returned to Mexico, she'll be in danger. The government's attorney claims she could live in a different area of Mexico and be just fine. Plus, she says, Floaty sells a danger to American society with her two DUIs. The judge gives no visible reaction and says she'll issue a written decision later. Court adjourns. After I catch up with Floaty Cell, she has a question for her attorney, Jehan Romero. What's going to happen with the ankle monitor? Usually you have to have the monitor for six months until we can ask them to take it off. But in your case, I don't know, because it was a condition of your bond. I ask her, so what now? Now we wait. We'll wait for the judge's decision to stay here with my kids. Floricel's attorney expected to hear a decision within a week or so. But months go by, and she hears nothing. The Trump administration institutes a policy of zero tolerance, meaning it prosecutes every single undocumented immigrant it can find, and it starts separating immigrant parents from their children. However, as part of a lawsuit by the ACLU challenging the family separation policy, ICE agreed to use more alternatives to detention, like ankle monitors, in the future. Another policy change happens while Floricel waits. Attorney General Jeff Sessions releases new guidelines for immigration judges around the country. He says that reasons like domestic violence or gang violence are not valid grounds for seeking asylum in the United States. It's unclear how this could affect Floaty Cell's chances of getting a favorable ruling from the judge. Bueno. Hola, 
Finally, when we talk four months later, Floricel gets very excited when she picks up the phone. I have good news, Ryan. Today, I talked with my attorney. I'm expecting to hear that she heard back from the judge, that she got her ankle monitor off or won the right to stay in the United States. But it turns out her attorney was letting her know that an article Floricel wrote was appearing in a magazine. She told me a magazine story about me is coming out on Thursday. She's heard nothing about her case. No, the judge still hasn't given the decision. The judge could deny Floricel's appeal. In that case, she can appeal again. But if the judge sides with Floricel, the government could appeal too. As of this recording, Floricel still has no idea whether she will get to continue her life in the United States, where her children were born, or return to a country that could put her life in danger. From Northern California, I'm Ryan Katz for 70 Million. Special thanks to Nujave Ramirez for voicing Floricel. We have a brief update. At the time of Ryan's reporting, ICE was relying on three local jails to detain immigrants throughout Northern California. Then, in June, the detention center near Floricel in Sacramento County canceled its contract with ICE. A month later, in July, public pressure led the Contra Costa Sheriff in the San Francisco Bay Area to do the same. Now, the closest detention center to the Bay Area is in Yuba City, two hours to the north. You've been listening to Episode 7 of the podcast 70 Million on Making Contact. 70 Million is made possible by a grant from the Safety and Justice Challenge at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. The podcast is a production of Lantigua Williams & Co. It's edited by Jen Chien and mixed by Luis Gill. Associate producer, Olawakemi Alade-Sui. Marketing specialist, Kate Kroschel. Resource guide writer, Amy Alexander. Juleka Lantigua-Williams is the creator and executive producer. And the series host is Mitzi Miller. Making Contact's team is executive director Lisa Redman, producers Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, and Salima Hamarani. Audience engagement director, Sabine Blazon. Outreach and distribution assistant, Dylan Hoyer. And I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program. 
Providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. The city of Bloomington continues to battle the emerald ash borer, an Asian beetle that feeds on ash trees. Last week, the Board of Park Commissioners approved an $11,000 contract with Ellington Tree Service to remove 13 infested trees on public property. Lee Huss is the city's urban forester. Primarily, some of these are close to over again overhead power lines where our crews are not certified to work within so many feet of an energized line. Uh, some of these others are next to certain areas of high high value also. So, real briefly, where they are, uh, there is a an, an ash and a clump of cherry trees in Davis Street, which is an unimproved right away off of Woodlawn Avenue heading east. That's been very problematic and uh, there's houses nearby, so some of these can reach private property. Uh, 909 North Woodbarn Avenue is an ash tree with the power line going, power service drop going through it. Cascades Golf Course on the north property line off of the, the property is off of Rosewood. The tree is just on our property line and is this large dead ash, actually two of them. And then uh, Clear Creek Trail on the Victor Pike trailhead, there's a clump of four ash trees that could either fall into the road or block the trail. And then Banta Street, there's two ash trees where there's a major overhead power line. This year, Huss has been before the Park Board asking for approval to remove infested ash trees. He told Park Board Chair Les Coyne that hiring the contractor will help the city respond quickly to the ongoing infest infestation. Congratulations to you for staying on top of this project. I know we're spending a lot of money on elm trees this year. It's looking back again, as I mentioned, either we're gonna drive the bus or the bug's gonna drive the bus. One of the two, when you have an in insect infestation. And how entomologists have explained it to me, it takes roughly about seven years for the bug to go through and eat its way through town and we are roughly it, it arrived in fall of 2013 so we're right at that cusp in the same meeting the board approved a $45,000 contract with Runsdale Ernstberger and Associates Parks Director Paula McDevitt said the urban design firm will help a team from the city design several beautification products pro projects for the city's gateways 
I will be working with representatives from the planning department and public works and parks along with um, REA to begin the design process of four what are just right now proposed sites and those are listed um, in your in your board report. Um, preliminarily and as we start to dive into this project, we're considering the Arlington Bridge location, um, Bloomfield Road, West 2nd Street between Basswood Drive and Weimar Road. Um, out on the east side of Bloomington, uh, 3rd Street and Knightridge Road, and then our very own northern tip of Miller Showers Park um, might be a nice location again for a gateway project. So we're um, excited to work with REA. As you know, they are doing the work down at Switchyard Park. Um, they are very creative and um, are going to run a dynamic process with this team. The gateway projects are part of a larger group of Greenway, trail and beautification projects planned to in honor of the city of Bloomington's bicentennial. The projects are being paid for with a $10 million bond approved by the Bloomington City Council last year. McDevitt said the city will be working to construct the gateway projects through 2021. Earlier in the meeting, the Parks and Recreation Department awarded its July Bravo Award to Hennepin Marketing. The local, form is a, the local firm is in its third year leading annual cleanups at Griffey Lake. Vox News reports that Ohio recently passed an energy bill called HB6, which has negative implications for renewable energy in the state. The bill will do four things. First, it will bail out two nuclear power plants that the operators say would close in the next couple of years without assistance. To raise $170 million for the bailout, consumer electricity bills will be raised. $150 million will go to the bailout, and $20 million will go towards existing solar projects. Second, an additional monthly surcharge will help bail out two coal plants, one in Ohio and the other in Indiana. Third, the bill requires utility companies to get 8.5% of their power from renewable sources by 2026. Industrial customers are exempted, and post-2026 energy standards are repealed. This will greatly reduce the incentives for renewable energy development in the state. Finally, the bill will repeal energy efficiency standards. Ohio utilities are required to lower consumers' energy use by 22% from 2008 levels by the year 2027. However, HB6 reduced that percentage to 17.5%, a level most companies have already reached. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, reports the average temperature in June soared to its highest level on record, and experts predict that July could follow the same pattern. The NOAA report states that 9 out of 10 of the warmest Junes ever recorded have occurred since 2010. Record-breaking heat was recorded throughout June all around the world. Global land and sea temperatures were 1.7 degrees Fahrenheit, higher than the 20th century average. This is the highest temperature recorded in June since record-keeping began in the 1800s. During the Jurassic period, over 200 million years ago, archaeological evidence shows that global temperatures were about 20 degrees higher than today. 
The higher temperatures were due to higher carbon dioxide levels, around 2,000 parts per million. Weather in India is becoming more extreme, with significant increases in numbers and temperatures of heat waves. During monsoon season, some Indian cities are vulnerable to flooding due to extreme rainfall. However, a United Nations report about extreme rainfall in India found only a very small increase in flooding frequency. Between 1996 and 2005, there were 67 severe floods, and between 2006 and 2015, there were 90. While extreme flooding hasn't increased much, extreme temperatures have. Between 1980 and 1999, there were 213 heat waves in the country. Between 2000 and 2018, there were 400 heat waves recorded in India. That's seven times more heat waves in the last 18 years, with more heat waves reported in 27 and 2018. And as reported by the Hindustan Times, the water level in India's major reservoirs and river basins has fallen to 21% of its average for the last 10 years. Over 3 billion people worldwide cook with solid fuel. However, using solid fuel to cook has a negative effect on the air quality of both the household and its surroundings. Burning solid fuel, such as wood or charcoal, generates a lot of smoke. This smoke can concentrate carbon monoxide and particulate matter around vulnerable populations. Solid fuel is the primary cause of indoor air pollution. The World Health Organization estimates that indoor air pollution from burning solid fuels is a factor in 4.3 million deaths each year. Accounting for these deaths, the report says, indoor air pollution causes respiratory illnesses, including pneumonia and lung cancer. The World Health Organization also finds that most of those who die are women and children. Indoor air pollution is associated with poverty. Use of traditional cookstoves is highest in countries with lowest incomes. Transitioning away from these kinds of solid fuel stoves is an ongoing policy challenge for many of the world's poorest nations. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Today we hear part two of a conversation we aired in last week's show. WFHB's Norm Holy spoke with Dr. Daniel Pauley of the University of British Columbia about the impact of overfishing and ocean warming on fish populations. We rejoin that conversation this week as Holy and Pauley discuss the state of fisheries in the northern Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. I'm curious about the Grand Bank. So in, I think it was 1992, they ended the cod fishery on the, on the Grand Banks, and they expected initially that the cod fishery would recover in a few years. Yeah, I, I know what you're going to say, uh, but it, it is actually, I was talking with a student of mine just a, a, few, a few hours ago. Actually, in 92, the fishery was closed because the abundance of the cod had declined to extremely low levels 
about 1% or less of its original uh, amount, or its original abundance. But the fish, we continued at very low level. Uh, the catch was very small, but since the population was also very small, the what is called exportation rate, it is really the catch relative to the abundance, actually was not reduced much. So the reason why the cod didn't recover, really, is because it continued to be fished. I, and that is, most people don't know that, because the catches after 92, uh, industrial fishery was, industrial fishing was forbidden, and so they, they were no more industrial catch. But the, the Newfoundlanders were permitted to fish for their home consumption. The, the, the recreational fishery continued and so on, and there was some illegal fishing. Combined, this, uh, and they were uh, young cod were caught as bycatch of the shrimp fishery, which then developed. For all this reason, the pressure on the much-reduced stock of cod continued to be high. And it is very surprising to people to hear that and know that. But actually, it's no wonder that they didn't recover uh, because they, were, they continued to be exploited after 92, after the fishery was closed. Another example up there is the halibut. How many days yeah. can, can they fish yeah, for halibut? Right. The halibut is also a sustainable fishery, and uh, it is managed by uh, uh, the Halibut Commission. That also does a very good job. And this is one of the fisheries of the world that maintain itself, though there is an erosion. Uh, the halibut are getting smaller and so on. But in, in most other countries, the, the stocks of that kind, like halibut or pollack, 10, 15 years, and they are gone, and they have to move on. And the herring, how is that herring fishery in, in Alaska? Mm, this is not a strong fishery. This is not a... Fisheries for herring and other, other small pelagic fish, uh, open water fish, are more uh, variable, uh, the fishery, because the, the stocks themselves are very variable. They are sh- shorter-lived, these animals, and they, they go up and down very much. And in that case, it's difficult to, to predict how much you will have, and uh, such fisheries have often collapsed. It is always a mixture of overfishing and uh, environmental condition having changed. How is the wild salmon fishery doing in Alaska? Very well. And uh, this is one of the few salmon fisheries that is doing well, it's reasonably managed, and it is cold there in Alaska. Whereas in California and in Oregon and Washington and B.C. now, the temperature is increasing and the salmon have problems uh, 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 handling, handling that. Um, basically, the, the, the ocean is getting inimical to to salmon. And we see that in, in British Columbia, where uh, the salmon have problems uh, moving up the, the, the Fraser River um, because it's, it's too warm. They have to wait at the mouth of the river uh, for a month or so until the temperature drops. And uh, many salmon are lost in, in this waiting period. Uh, it, is, uh, it is getting too hot. Um, for 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 salmon, and that is the case, obviously in California and in Oregon. Alaska is not affected by that uh, so much. They're tearing down some of the dams on the rivers uh, on the west coast in order to make it uh, 
possible for the salmon to migrate up. Yes. But, uh, so is it too late? Every, no, no. Uh, everywhere you open up a river, it's like you, you stop strangling it. Uh, all of a sudden it can breathe again, and uh, the value of the electricity that the small dam produce is actually less than that of a good salmon run, because salmon are very valuable. Uh, wild salmon, good quality, uh, are very valuable. And you you have this as a, if the resource can be maintained uh, uh, forever. Um, so, so I understand that the logic uh, of getting rid of small dams that have become uh, industrially uh, obsolete. And also in New England, uh, they have done that of you know, hail wives and so on. And this has been a resounding success. I'd like to um, ask about uh, the tuna fishery in the Pacific. How are the species doing? Some are doing very badly. The bigger one, the uh, Pacific bluefin, the big eye, and so on, they are doing very, very badly. And the abundance has plunged to less than 10% of the original abundance. But uh, what maintains the fisheries are the so-called yellowfin and skipjack tuna. This is the ones that are most abundant and smaller. And in the Pacific Ocean, what... uh, is happening now with, with the tuna fishery. We have seen it happening in the Atlantic Ocean and in the Indian Ocean. The big tuna, the Atlantic bluefin, for example, were fished first, uh, then then yellowfin, then skipjack, and so on. Then the fishery goes down the tube, and this is happening in the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean, and it is now happening in the Pacific, because basically the it's unrelenting. Every country wants to have a piece of this action. This is a big problem because uh, the Pacific uh, island nations, they have overfished the coastal resources on reefs, and they want to be eaten tuna for its food security, uh, as for the protein. And they, at the same time, they want to export them to to have a, a foreign currency income. And these two goals are incompatible. The Pacific cannot at the same time feed the people in the Pacific and Europe and North America and Asia and so on. So it is a catastrophe waiting to happen, as it did in the Atlantic and Indian Ocean. And the fisheries are heavily subsidized. That's the reason why they continue to grow and grow and grow. They are actually, if you were doing a a real cost-benefit analysis, you wouldn't have them. I'm curious whether there's any concerted effort to reduce the the number of fishing vessels worldwide. That is what is not happening. Uh, that is precisely what is not happening. Uh, in Europe, there was an initiative a few years ago to reduce the subsidies to to the building of boats, of new boats, and the renewal of fleet. And uh, the European Parliament has just passed uh, legislation which revokes this beneficial uh, restraint, and they will start again subsidizing because Europe is competing against China and Asia for access to tuna and other resources. That's precisely the point. So all this madness is directed toward competing for declining resources. I'd like to thank you very much for the interview. I've been interviewing Dr. Daniel Pauly. Thank you.
Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for In Nature. been listening to In Nature. The Rusty Patch Bumblebee is the first bee in the continental U.S. to be listed as endangered by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services. The Rusty Patch Bumblebee lives in Indiana as well as the eastern U.S. and upper Midwest into Canada. Bumblebees live in underground colonies caring for a queen. Worker bees fly around during the day collecting flower pollen and nectar for food and energy. They only live for a year. The rusty-patched bumblebee is among a group of pollinators, including the monarch butterfly, experiencing serious declines across the U.S. There are a number of reasons for the crash of pollinator bees worldwide. Mainly, those are habitat loss. Nearly 40% of all land is used for agriculture, climate change, and rampant use of pesticides. The pollination of the rusty patch bumblebee has shrunk by 87% since the late 1990s. They have entirely black heads, but only workers and males have rusty, reddish patch centrally located on the back. As pollinators, rusty patch bumblebees contribute to our food security and the healthy functioning of our ecosystems. Bumblebees are keystone species in most ecosystems, necessary not only for native wildflower reproduction, but also for creating seeds and fruits that feed wildlife as diverse as songbirds and grizzly bears. Bumblebees are among the most important pollinators of crops such as blueberries, cranberries, and clover, and almost the only insect pollinators of tomatoes. They are more effective pollinators than honeybees for some crops because of their ability to buzz pollinate. You can help conserve the rusty patch bumblebee by growing a garden or adding flowers and limiting the use of pesticides. You've been listening to In Nature. And now for some upcoming local events. There will be an invasive control work day at Griffey Lake on Saturday, August 3rd from 1 to 4 p.m. Participants will partner with the City of Bloomington Parks and Recreation staff to help remove privet and Japanese stilt grass. Meet at the Griffey Lake Boathouse parking lot. You should wear long pants, long sleeves, and close-toed shoes, and bring a bottle of water. For more information or to, or to register, contact Joanna Sparks at sparkj at bloomington.in.gov or call 812 349-3497. Sycamore Land Trust will sponsor a hike around the Touch the Earth Natural Area this Saturday, August 3rd. The area is a 98-acre nature preserve near Columbus, Indiana. The hike will run from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. and focus on the butterflies and flowers in the area. You will also learn to identify common insects and the plants they rely on along the way. The hike will cover two miles. Reservation is required and can be found at sycamorelandtrust.org slash hike hyphen RSVP. 
The Heartlands group of the Sierra Club Hoosier chapter is hosting a hike on Saturday, August 3rd from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. The hike will be to Browning Mountain. Browning Mountain, called Indiana Stonehenge, is located in the Hoosier National Forest off Helmsburg Road. To make reservations, email bowden.quinn at sierraclub.org. Springmill State Park will host a hike through Donaldson Woods on Sunday, August 4th. It will run from 8 to 9.45 a.m. The naturalist will guide the hike, which is through a preserved woodland habitat with trees that are 300 to 400 years old. Meet at the Twin Cave parking lot. Public meetings for a proposed forest management project will take place on Monday, August 5th, and Wednesday, August 7th. Both meetings run from 6 to 8 p.m. On Monday, Jackson County will host a meeting site at Brownstown Central High School. Brownstown Central is at 608 West Commerce Street in Brownstown. The Monroe County Public Library will host the Wednesday meeting. Both will discuss projects to improve nearby forest habitat. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought listening to Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Linda Green, Kaylin Huffman-Brower, Andrew Brown, and Sarah Vaughn. Today's feature was produced by Norm Holy and edited by Sarah Vaughn. Myself, Juliana Daly, wrote our In Nature segment and compiled our events calendar. Andrew Brown, Sarah Vaughn, and Kaylin Huffman-Brower edited the script. Patrick Callahan produced and engineered today's show with help from Sarah Vaughn. The Eco Report team will be taking the rest of August off for a brief summer hiatus. During that time, we'll be working to refresh our content. We are currently looking for reporters and segment producers for the show, particularly those interested in environmental issues relevant to South Central Indiana. Our goal is to continue to examine how we're all affected by global climate disruption and ongoing assaults on our water and land. We celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world. We need more content creators. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome. If you're interested in joining our team, just email us at earth at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. And this is Eco Report. And that concludes Eco Report for today, August the 1st. And let's have a little check of the weather here before we go on. It is 77 degrees out there. And for tonight, today, we're expecting mostly sunny skies with a high of 84. 
Tonight, mostly clear with a low of 64. Friday, mostly sunny with a high of 87. On Friday night, mostly clear with a low of 64. Saturday, sunny with a high of 87. And Saturday night, mostly clear with a low of 63 degrees. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! coming up in a minute. And in the meantime, let us tell you that this is WFHB Bloomington, Indiana, broadcasting independently from the John Waldron Arts Center, which is owned and operated by Ivy Tech Community College, Bloomington, a proud supporter of community radio. is democracy now everybody's talking about how terrible i am on these issues barack obama knew exactly who i was he had he had 10 lawyers do a background check on everything about me on civil rights and civil liberties and he chose me and he said it was the best decision he Thank made you, Mr. President. President. in the second democratic debate former vice president joe biden faced increasing criticism over his record on criminal justice the iraq war women's rights and more 